Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. If you've listened to our last several Critical Value shows, you know we're doing something a little different right now. We're taking a look at how the pandemic is impacting families and communities in major ways and keeping an eye squarely on what it means for the most vulnerable Americans. This is now the fifth in our COVID-19 series. And today we're gonna tackle a huge question. How do we address the truly historic levels of unemployment that our country will be facing in the coming months and years? And when I say historic, I mean it. Since March 21st, more than 30 million people have sought unemployment benefits. That's nearly one out of every five workers, and there does not appear to be an end in sight. An additional 3.8 million Americans filed for unemployment claims. That brings our six-week total to over 30 million Americans. It's unbelievable. Again, this erases all job creation since the entire recovery, so back to the financial crisis. The April jobs report, which will be released this Friday, will offer up a clearer picture on how COVID-19 is impacting unemployment rates, job losses, and earnings. But the time is now to start developing new proposals and possible fixes to address the crisis. And here at the Urban Institute, that is a lot of what our people are up to. In this episode, I talk with a few urban researchers about their best ideas to jumpstart the economy as soon as we can and had them make a pitch for their big idea. Think of it as like a super wonky shark tank, you know, like wonk tank. And it's all about solutions for the COVID economy. First up, Greg Och, Vice President of Income and Benefits Policy here at Urban. We started talking about the scale of the challenge that we're dealing with now. We are going to hit very soon historically high levels of unemployment, largely because we have intentionally shut down the economy to address a public health crisis. As we start moving into the next phase, there'll be some loosening up. Some of that obscenely high unemployment will come down to just staggeringly high unemployment. But as we head into 2021, the CBO projects that unemployment will be over 10% for the year on average. And that's where we were uh, during the Great Recession. So that's a really high sustained level of unemployment that we're going to have to deal with even as we hopefully move into a more stable situation in the coming months. And then the expectation is that as retail opens up at 25% capacity, um, stay-at-home orders are lifted, Schools open back up, at least in some limited capacity, maybe significant regional variation. The overall unemployment rate will start coming down in the second half of the year. But when you think about the nature of the disruption and the fact that we are going to have a continuing public health crisis well into 2021, the CBO projects, and I think it's a reasonable projection, that unemployment will remain high. And it's going to remain high for all the reasons that you've heard. None of us are going to restaurants, we're not shopping or flying places or staying in hotels. Greg says this is a unique problem of vast proportions, and his idea to solve it is also big. I think the only way we really address the significantly staggeringly high unemployment that will extend into 2021 is through a large public employment program on the order of the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, from the Great Depression. 
As you may recall from the old-timey movie previews that we all watched in the 1930s, the WPA stands for Works Progress Administration. It was one of the biggest federal responses to the Great Depression during that time. Vital to the communities which they serve are the thousands of miles of highways constructed and improved by the Works Program. The need for first-class highways grows constantly as the automobile and the motor truck become increasingly important in both city and rural commerce. Greg believes that given the dramatic need for jobs, the program could aim for remarkable scale. If we think about jobs that would pay $15 an hour and would employ people, say, 32 hours a week, that comes out to pretty close to $25,000 a year, which is close to the federal poverty level for a family of four. And if we were talking about creating six, 6.5 million jobs, the salary costs plus associated set up costs and materials and training would come out to just under $200 billion a year. So that's a big investment. What kind of work could this program create? Like what type of jobs might make sense? You know, the first obvious sector would be to help out in our public schools. We have children across the country who have missed three plus months of schooling, unlikely to have summer programs. And so, you know, the lost classroom time, lost education time, is a potential problem going forward. Beyond that, we're going to need a a much larger public health workforce and people to help do contact tracing, people to help manage the pandemic. And so you could hire a bunch of folks to do that. So the education and the public health spaces could benefit from additional labor. What about other areas? In addition, there are ongoing needs for infrastructure projects and ongoing needs for in the construction space to build more affordable housing. You could work through programs to provide workers to companies that would build housing that are engaged in infrastructure, lower the cost of those projects to the companies for doing the work. Obviously, this would be a massive program, but Greg is optimistic that with sufficient planning and commitment, we could get this done. The Works Progress Administration was signed as an executive order in May of 1935. And by December of 1935, there were almost 2.7 million people employed. If we could do it then, without the benefit of the internet, without all the technology we have, we can do it now if we commit to it. But it also means that if we want to be ready for 2021, we have to start planning very, very soon. And Greg says, overall, there are a couple of big wins with this idea. One, it gets people working. Two, you know, there are critical needs in this country, not the least of which is the lost educational opportunities for students, particularly students who are at most at risk because they're low income, they're in under-resourced schools, and they don't have connectivity to even be in a virtual classroom. Uh, We've ignored lots of infrastructure that needs attention, Uh, lots of cities, especially coastal cities, need to be attentive to climate change. It's a chance to take resources that are otherwise sitting idle and devote them to things we need. So it could be a win-win. Next up in the Wonk Tank, Urban Senior Fellow Heather Hahn. For her big idea, she's thinking of targeting a more specific population. The people that my proposal really focuses on are the people who are the most marginalized workers already people who have had very low incomes 
So while Greg was thinking about the entire population of unemployed workers, Heather is focused on those who were already struggling. And she's looking ahead to the months when the economy starts to open up again. So the proposal that I have is really to replicate something that happened at the end of the Great Recession. So it's not something that we can do right now while people are sheltering in place and and staying at home. But when things start to open again and people need to get back to work, helping people find jobs and helping small businesses get back on their feet is going to be something really important again. Heather's big idea is to revive a program that arose out of the Great Recession of 2008 in the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. This law authorized something called a TANF Emergency Fund. TANF stands for the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program. TANF is best known for providing cash assistance to low-income families with children, but the TANF Block Grant funds can also be used to support low-income families in several other ways including with subsidized jobs. The TANF Emergency Fund was available to states in 2009 and 2010 to support subsidized jobs programs. But this was an opportunity where states had this federal funding that they could access to create or expand these programs. And states really responded to that. They sometimes only had less than a year to get these off the ground and run them from the time that they first learned about it to the time that the funding was no longer available. So in this really short time frame, states ramped up these programs. They got almost a quarter of a million people into subsidized jobs. This was a program with a lot of flexibility that allowed states and localities to design programs that met their specific needs. But maybe you're wondering, like, What exactly is a subsidized job in the first place? The basic aspect of it is that they are reimbursing employers for the wages of people that they they hire through this program. But the states and localities had different models in terms of which employers they targeted, how much of the wages was reimbursed, how long they lasted. All of those things were all over the map, but they were created by the states and localities to meet their needs. I think that was one of the things that helped make it successful. And the program worked well because the startup was relatively easy. One of the things that we learned from the past experience was just how quickly states and localities were able to do this. And they were able to build on things that they had already started in a small way or create something brand new in a very short time and have a really big bang for the buck quickly. And here's what's really cool. The program helped people find jobs in a wide range of areas. But the important thing is that these were actually new jobs, like really new jobs, not just ones that businesses would have hired for anyway. Sometimes there have been subsidized jobs programs that are focused on putting people in government agencies or nonprofit agencies. There was some of that in this case, but one of the features was They were placing people in private sector jobs. And what that meant is that private sector businesses were benefiting from this money. There were evaluations of how these these subsidized jobs programs worked. And one of the findings was the, the benefits for those businesses. They were actually creating new positions. This wasn't displacing people. This was creating new positions. It was helping small businesses stay afloat 
and helping other businesses expand. These were certainly impressive outcomes. And if we wanted to replicate the program now, what kind of dollar figures are we talking about? In the past recession, of the TANF emergency fund, $1.3 billion went to subsidized jobs. So I don't know that it would play out exactly the same way this time, but I think knowing that in that context, the $1.3 billion created 260,000 jobs. So I think in the current context, it's not really a matter of how much does this cost. It's a question of how much can Congress invest? And I think it is reasonable to assume that with a similar investment, you'd have a, a similar return. One important part of Heather's idea, well, the federal government wouldn't have to create anything new to actually administer the program. So this idea wouldn't require any new infrastructure at the federal level at all. This works through existing TANF programs. So this is really just about adding money to an existing infrastructure and building it up and not having to create something brand new from scratch. I think what's exciting about this proposal is that it is directly assisting low-income workers and businesses at the same time and helping them all get off the ground and get back to a better place. So that's round two of Wonk Tank. So far, we've talked about the macro WPA-style program and now a program built on the structure of TANF to provide subsidized jobs. Next up, I talk with Sheena Ashley, Vice President of Urban Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy. Here's what was on her mind. So I'm primarily thinking about the slice of youth in our country who are called opportunity youth. The 4.6 million young adults between the ages of 16 to 24 who before the crisis even hit were not connected to work or school. I'm particularly thinking about that vulnerable population that we had before the crisis and now the additional youth who are going to be added to that number following the crisis. And what's Sheena's big idea? Thinking about an extension of AmeriCorps programs that are focused on opportunity youth. Okay, that sounds great. But let's start with the basics. What is AmeriCorps? So AmeriCorps is one of the national service programs that's administered by the Corporation for National and Community Service. In these programs, they provide full-time paid service positions that combine real work in service to community, skill development, and also supportive services or mentoring to help youth transition into the labor market or pursue some kind of continuing education. Typically, they take on slots in nonprofit organizations and support in different ways. And some of it is in some skilled volunteering slots that would have typically been there, or they take on you know, roles where these organizations don't have the resources to actually pay into some of those more staff positions that they have, and they use AmeriCorps slots in there. There are tens of thousands of young people already involved in the AmeriCorps program, and it's also, in effect, a subsidized work program. As part of these, there's an education award that you receive at the end of your service. So it's a paid subsidized work opportunity and that in the end, you also receive this education award that then they can use to pay off any other former education costs that they have, if they have loans or if they want to use that to enter any qualified educational experience, they can now use that as a way to go to school. 
And so I see this as an opportunity to expand AmeriCorps and AmeriCorps-type programs that are tailored to opportunity youth so that we can really take the realize the opportunity that these youth really bring to help us through this recovery moment. So for these youth, what kind of jobs might the expanded program create? We have Conservation Corps, which is one of these kind of AmeriCorps programs where we've had dispatch you to do disaster relief, plant trees in communities, monitor different conservation projects, the full gamut of what you think the nonprofit sector and the missions that they have. Youth have been working in all of those roles throughout those organizations to do this. And so I think that the demand is still there in those, especially as nonprofit organizations face an environment where they're going to have limited philanthropic resources and also public resources. And then they also need the voluntary input to help meet the growing demand that they have. Think about getting meals to seniors right now, you know, having more folks who can engage in that at the scale, the new demand that we have for that right now is really critical. And young people can serve an important role. Sheena says it's especially important to think about opportunity youth at this time. As they try to be connected, even in a time when we had economic prosperity, it was difficult for them to do it. Now the competition that they're going to face in a labor market where there's fewer jobs and especially entry level jobs, and they're going to face greater competition for other people, people who have already gone through and are graduating from college, people who are new graduates from high school even who were connected are now going to be competing with some of the same opportunities that would have been available to these groups previously that are not going to be available. The scale and cost of the program will obviously tie into how many youth it tries to serve. But I asked Sheena for some estimates. There was a study that was conducted to try to estimate the cost of expansion of national service program. And so if we expanded it to the maximum in which the legislation is already authorized for it to go, that will cost an additional $5 billion. So we want to grow from around 80,000 to 250,000 positions, which will max out the scale within the authorization. And that's about a $5 billion cost. And what's another benefit of Sheena's idea? Well, providing job opportunities to opportunity youth could also help improve civic trust and engagement. They learn more about their community needs. They report feeling much more connected to their community and more empowered to think that they can do something for changing the conditions that they live in. So that's also part of why I'm thinking of targeting us to young people who we need, after coming through a kind of situation like we have right now, need an an extra dose of optimism in the sense that the future is something that they have some control over. For our final entrant in the Wong Tank, I talked with urban senior researcher Jesse Janetta in our Justice Policy Center. His proposal targets an even more specific population. So these are youth who are most at risk or of justice involvement or already justice involved. They might be involved in delinquency, have been arrested on community supervision or in networks at most risk of uh, committing violence. This tends to be a population that is most disconnected from the labor market. And that means in a moment of labor market crisis like we're about to experience, they're the most likely to be left behind if no one proactively does something to prevent that from happening. So what's Jesse's big idea to help these youth? I think what we need is a subsidized youth employment program in neighborhoods or particularly focusing on neighborhoods with the highest level 
of crime and violence. That's where a lot of the the youth populations we're talking about are concentrated. Jesse says there are already model programs in place that are reaching this population and connecting them with job opportunities. In Chicago, one of the prominent programs uh, looking at this from the summer perspective for at-risk youth is called One Summer Plus, and they've been serving 30,000 youth just in Chicago alone. So you look at this nationwide, and we're talking about at least hundreds of thousands of youth. The goal is to find a placement for the youth to enter into the workforce, often for the first time. So sometimes it's meant youth are placed working in quote-unquote regular job, maybe in private industry, but some or even all of their wages are being paid. Sometimes that's temporary. So you give an employer an opportunity with somebody else paying the wage to see how someone is as a worker and become familiar with them. And then often what you're trying to do is transition that to the employer taking them on full time. And again, you know, we're talking about a population that doesn't have a lot of work history. I mean, part of what you're doing is you're setting things up so that someone that an employer might normally look at their resume, if they have one or their work history or their situation and say, I don't see an employee here and set things up so that it's lower risk for them and also that they're giving somebody a chance and they can see what they're able to do. And Jesse believes that these type of programs could be scaled up nationwide. But what might that look like? This is probably something at the order of 15 to 20 cities. You could do a lot with, say, 50 to 75 million. I think that some of that is probably going to come have to come from federal sources. That's one of the areas where resources can be marshaled. And again, you know, this is work that a lot of localities in particular have invested in, and they're just not going to be in a position to make these kind of investments in the years to come. Jesse says the data show that these programs work and scaling them up right now with a federal investment could be a win for the youth who really need it. We are at a point where we have more evidence of effectiveness of this kind of work than we've had. We have actual infrastructure and capacity that's been built in a lot of places to do it. And then when you're talking about youth, we have always this critical moment The opportunities that you have to intervene with somebody when they're 16 or 18 or 20 aren't necessarily going to be there three or four years from now when economic circumstances get better and you could lose some of that capacity. I think part of what we've seen in the evidence base on some of these interventions is if you bring them in, if you're able to connect them to work, instead, they're able to take better care of themselves. Jesse says these investments can pay long-term dividends. Working in justice policies, you always end up paying for it one way or the other. So I think, you know, I often think working in an area where we talk about incarceration, we talk about policing, the bill always comes due. So I think it's often a matter of exactly what kind of dollar do we want to spend and what do we want to spend it for? And, you know, we know in the history of this country and even what we see playing out every day, we will spend the money on putting people in cells if we're not going to spend the money on other things. In closing, Jesse offered a reflection that I think motivated all of our researchers that we featured here today, that this challenging moment will require responses that think about the most vulnerable members of our society. How will we make sure that they don't fall even further behind? One of the things you see in times of crisis is the deficits that we have socially where we haven't invested, where communities are the last to receive resourcing, are often, again, the hardest hit. 
in times of crisis. And so harms are being replicated that have already been there historically. And so I do think that there's a definite deliberate reparative intent for this, not only making sure that the people who have tended to be left behind under normal circumstances, quote unquote, aren't left behind, but they're actually deliberately going and trying to build them up where you know the damage is going to be the greatest. So that's our show. Big thank you to urban researchers Greg Ott, Heather Hahn, Sheena Ashley, and Jesse Janetta. In my eyes, you're all Wong Tank winners. You can read more about Urban's work on our webpage, www.urban.org slash critical value. If you have a minute, please hit us up with a rating on iTunes. Five stars is always great, or even leave a review. We appreciate the support and love hearing from you. Another big thank you to producers Katie Smith and Jacinth Jones. And thanks, as always, to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from Podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and on behalf of my two kids that are now co-producers. Thank you, everybody, for listening to um, our podcast. And I hope you have a good day today and every day. Goodbye.